Thanks for checking out this episode of Business Black Belts. I really appreciate you listening and hope you get some great insights out of today's leader. Let's dive into the show. Hey everybody, welcome back to Business Black Belts. I am thrilled today to have Shashank from Boss Framework on. Uh, Thank you so much for stopping by. Absolutely, it's my pleasure. So as I mentioned with this show, my goal is really to profile leaders and how they got from sort of being a novice in their space or what in the karate world would be called a white belt belt. uh, up to being someone who's an expert uh, which from that world which I I was only a brown belt myself but in that world kind of is called a black belt uh, but in the world of business so for you you're one of the people that I think of as one of the most talented leaders in software development uh, and engineering and cloud security who's kind of gone through that journey of filling out a, you know, Indeed application or whatever to get your first software development job, all the way to now really reinventing how the space is done. So I'm really excited to dive into that. But my first question for you, uh, which I love to ask, is if you kind of took this blend of personal and professional, how would you describe yourself in your own words? My family will hate me for this, but I've always described myself just as an engineer. Uh, I think I'm a builder and I like to solve complex problems uh, with business simplicity. Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's about how I'd like to describe myself. And does that trace all the way back to your early roots or when did you sort of realize you had that problem solving engineer mindset? I think very early, I, I was very clear right through that I wanted to become an engineer. There's certain people within my family and circle uh, who were uh, my role models, if you will. Uh, my grandfather was an engineer, uh, you know, and this was back in the day when India was still under the British rule. So it was a pretty difficult thing, and he wanted all of his grandchildren to become engineers. So, kind of fulfilling uh, a, a family tradition, if you will. Uh, and so we grew up thinking uh, of becoming engineers and, and, and mechanical engineer was who I wanted to be, what I wanted to do. So, uh, yeah, that's where it started. But actually, in retrospect, I think I wouldn't do anything else but engineering, building something. Mm-hmm. And, and where were you born? Where did you grow up? In India. Um, India, it's, it's a... So I was born in a little uh, in a tier two city, but I grew up uh, in a city called Hyderabad, which is one of the largest cities uh, in India. It's a IT hub, and uh, it's it's I mean, probably employs more than half a million engineers today. Wow! And, and so when did you come over to the U.S.? Ninety-nine. Okay, and how did you pick Nashville? I've been in Nashville only about shy of six years now, uh, but I I was looking for a tier two city to start boss, uh, which was a little bit more um, you know friendly in terms of just you know living conditions and cost of living versus uh, you know what you can make and what you have to pay people. So uh, I also incidentally got my first couple of customers here. So Nashville, I came here a few times after visiting other tier two cities and then just fell in love with the place. Mm-hmm. And now has American country music uh, 
made it into your daily uh, routine or not quite? <laughs> Don't get that kind of time. No, no, not really. No. Um, and now, how did you start your career in software? So what, when, I guess when you first moved to the U.S. in 1999, what was that journey of eventually getting to where you started, boss? So I came to the U.S. for my master's in robotics. And uh, I, because I, I really always liked automation and, uh, you know, offsetting what would be, uh, what could be done by a robot, if you will, to a, uh, you know, to a less creative uh, thing, if you will. Uh, so human beings can work at the peak of their value chain. That's what has been always driving me right from the beginning. So when I started robotics, I started interacting with uh, professors in all engineering disciplines and somehow got to learn that with software, mainly computer science, that possibility is maximized. So I, and everybody was moving to software. This was back in 99. So I said, let me try and do that. And I moved over to software. Uh, and how did you go, and was that first as a developer at another company, or how did you get into doing it from being a developer to building your own platform to do it? Yeah, so uh, as a student, uh, and I studied in Alabama, University of South Alabama, uh, this is a time when a lot of people would come and speak at the university, talk to us about what they're working on, uh, trying to build certain applications and such. So every time there was a seminar of that sort, I would go and attend and meet the speaker or whoever that entrepreneur was backstage and just talk to that person because I was intrigued at what they were doing. Uh, many cases, these people were looking for somebody that could build software for them. So even as a student, I started doing some projects. I probably worked on about 30 projects just, just for, the, for the fun of doing it and for the experience. One of them looked at me and said, uh, I'd love to have you build a product. And this was called Going Global. And she was, this was a lady, she was an attorney that was trying to build a website that uh, served people that were trying to work, that were interested in working in other cities, other countries. So she had 23 countries. Anyway, long story short, I started doing all of that and then found a job at a startup uh, and I was their first co-founder. Uh, so I started working there it's, uh, in the school industry. Um, and then we, I, I basically was their first programmer, automated a lot of it. And then really I loved the whole concept of automating, making things easier for people so they could work at the top of their value chain. Um, yeah, it's such a fascinating... Uh... Yeah premise because of today's world you hear about automation is not coming for creative thinking or decision making it's really coming for repeat tasks that humans hate right right and and as much as we are trying to push the boundaries it's really an understanding of how far you can take common sense and put that in a program right i mean really that's what it boils down to and you can take it quite quite a bit far which means now we can work at a much higher creative capacity than we would have otherwise had been able to. Yeah, I love how you think about that. So so where do you think the role is of software that can think with maybe a human kind of providing the guardrails of where we are in 2020 to in 2040 or 2050? Do you think that 
with NLP and machine learning and all this that common sense will actually be able to be done in almost every job? Or where are you on that spectrum of kind of viewing how far automation will go in our lifetime? I, I mean, if you think about where the world was just 30 years back versus now, then it, the, the, the speed with which innovation is taking place and the way the world is changing has accelerated unbelievably at a scale that we've not really been able to conceptualize even maybe 10 years back. I think in 40 years from now, we will be automating a lot of things that we are currently not even able to think of what are considered, even I mean, 10 years back, what was considered a creative job is now done by a SaaS program. And, uh, you know, and then but every, there's more dearth for jobs and good employees today than there's ever been. What that's telling you is that growth is catching on uh, at a level and at a scale that uh, will only keep growing. In 40 years from now, I think uh, natural language processing, mainly artificial intelligence, will get to a level where human beings currently believe uh, they are at. And I think it will become that supercomputer, if you will, that is able to process trillions of transactions in a given minute and is able to communicate that to billions of people at the same time. And uh, what that means is, uh, everything that we look at as science fiction today will probably become just a way of life for us. That's, that's my thinking. Okay. Yeah, it's such an interesting thing because if you, I always think about World War II to the Civil War as the same distance of time as World War II to today. Yeah. You think if technology is exponential, how much all of this improves. It wasn't that long ago that you know, people had bolt-action rifles or something. Now you see all these things like drones, and in the whole scheme of human history, it's a very small amount of time. And that exponential curve is uh, is interesting. So I'm curious in your own words, and uh, maybe this is a little commercial for Boss, what exactly do you guys do in this value chain for a software development organization? So what we do is we automate infrastructure, uh, for the and DevOps for companies that are uh, building new products or are migrating from their legacy systems to the cloud. Uh, and in so doing, we make sure that they are secure, compliant, and highly scalable. That's what we do. So what was otherwise a human job uh, with multiple DevOps engineers working over a very long time, we basically automate that with an out-of-the-box software that automates a large portion of, portion of what goes into cloud engineering. And it sounds like you guys focus especially on regulated industries, or do you kind of do that across the board? We specialize in regulated industry because they're most concerned about security and compliance. Uh, building to security and compliance is a very tedious task. It requires a lot of expertise and knowledge, and engineers are not traditionally trained on those types of skills. They're trained to build against features and functionality against requirements, whereas what is required to build a secure, resilient, compliant system is a lot of expertise that comes only with a lot of years and bringing in experts. 
So what we're doing is offsetting that need. Mm-hmm. And, and it sounds like you've had a lot of success. Or can you speak to that? Like, what are some of the results you've seen? So since 2018, we've been doubling year over year. We've become cash positive in about three and a half years, which, you know, for a startup is pretty difficult to achieve. And we're growing very, very fast, both in India and in the U.S. as a team. Uh, We are uh, now focusing on the growing startup space, although we have companies in mid-market and enterprise space as well. That's where we're seeing the most success. And that's where when a company is either in the healthcare or finance sector, they uh, want to move to a more modern cloud infrastructure, which they can depend on, their future revenues can be assured, and their future service can be guaranteed at a certain level of uh, uh, stability and scalability. We come in there and then we help them get to that point very quickly and efficiently. And especially in a time where it's hard to retain and find good people, I'm sure the demand for that kind of package service is only growing. Absolutely, yeah. Now, what's your vision for it? Like, how big is Boss going to be when we have you on the show in 10 years? I look at this as a global problem that's not being solved properly, Miles. Uh, The way people are approaching it today is very, very manual and artisanal. We have every company looking for DevOps and security engineers. They come come in with their own sets of preferred tools and then those become company decisions and then they come and leave. And then that becomes a problem for the company to deal with after that company, that person comes and does something and leaves. This is a problem that pervades every sector, every type of company, every size of company. Uh, if everything comes together the way I'm planning it, Boss will be a global company that works across every sector every size of company in 10 years. Um, I look at Boss becoming the default standard for how secure, compliant architectures have to be built, whether that's cloud or outside. And uh, like I said, that automation piece, which ultimately makes sure that everything that can be automated is automated so that human beings can work at the peak of their value chain comes uh, to fruition. And is that what motivates you to push so hard? Is it, is it like, is it the desire to give people better work experience or what, what drives you? Cause I know you're incredibly tenacious. What drives you? That's exactly what drives me, which is, you know, uh, the, when I, each time I see inefficiency, people trying to do something and then committing mistakes and then people paying for those mistakes it frustrates me. I look at that and go like, you know, there's so much more that these, these people could be doing. I don't like people protecting their jobs or their little territories. As a human race, I think we have a responsibility to build something that is bigger than ourselves, that outlasts us, that outlives us. So this that we're doing right now with Boss is one step in that direction. It's a small piece in the bigger puzzle. And that... Uh, I am a possible channel in making that happen uh, is incredibly gratifying and uh, motivating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. I, I kind of have had this view 
of I wanted to make it so businesses could get at bats without having to break the bank. So kind of if they think about meritocratically, it's their job to go convince someone to buy, but maybe I could get them to the doorstep in a way that doesn't burn them or put an undue amount of risk. Because I saw so many companies spending thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars without getting any at-bats. And it, it uh, it's interesting how that, uh, for me, has been really motivating and kind of a north star of what the product should do. And you've got that same vision. It's like you don't want businesses to have employees hate their jobs and just constantly be spinning in circles yeah. uh, around I mean, this DevOps concept is fascinating because you're talking about people who write code, which is an automated function doing a bunch of manual work. And it's, it's I don't know, hypocritical is the wrong word, but it's kind of ironic yeah. that DevOps has become such a mangled human mess. It has. When it's supporting uh, coding. You, you know, this is the funny part. DevOps, and people have forgotten why DevOps came in into being in the first place, majority of them, at least when they take their decisions and it becomes functional for them. The core purpose of why DevOps came into being is somewhere lost. And, uh, the, you know, if you, if you recall, DevOps was drawn as this little Venn diagram with Dev and Ops, and then they would put this little area which shaded area that cross you know that that intersection area as devops now devops has become this gigantic big circle that sits right in between dev and ops and nobody knows where you know what part of dev is devops what part of ops is devops and what is devops because all three exist right developers do a little bit of devops ops do a little bit of devops and devops there are specialists and there are god knows how many tools and this has only increased the number of cyber problems. This has only increased the amount of spend and the total confusion. And today, tech leaders are clueless as to what they're doing. And I've seen so many CEOs and CTOs who tell me, Shashank, I don't know why I'm spending the money I'm spending, but I have to because my developer tells me that I have to. And guess what? That developer learns those two tools. He's $20,000 more valuable and he leaves. Where does that leave the company? So this is a very real and a current problem. Uh, and that must be solved today. And it's interesting, too, because one of the things that uh, I've noticed in America is our ability to do repetitive work is my generation, I'll call it, is completely different than previous generations. And so people do want more decision-making, more creativity, more interaction. They don't want to spend the first 20 years sitting typing out ones and zeros. Right. Uh, and one of the challenges that I've noticed, if you look at why America is, I don't want to say sliding economically, but certainly has slowed its economic dominance in the world, is this reliance on other countries to do kind of the work that our people don't want to do. And I think it's interesting to think about how companies like Boss potentially can actually play into the fact that Americans want to be doing a different type of work and positively change our country that way. Because, uh, I mean, all the data on like HBR that they do on these great resignation studies is that the number one driver of job, sat job satisfaction is what you're doing. Right. It's not the company's mission or how nice your core. It's just like, do you actually like XYZ tasks? Uh, and you're really um, 
going to be a huge part of that for what's going to become, if it isn't already, kind of the most critical part of winning in business, which is how to use technology. You um, know, yeah. w- one of the biggest reasons, you know, I am an American by choice, not by birth. And the reason I was drawn to uh, the U.S. and why I, I'm an American is that entrepreneurial spirit, the desire to do something differently, the desire to do something better, you know, right from how we have selected our metric system to how we, you know, how we think about every single single thing. It's so funny where we drive, how we turn on uh, an electric switch. Everything is different from the rest of the world. And that is a personality and a character that absolutely is fascinating and I love it. Um, and that drew me to the country that I is now my home. Uh, but we are somewhere losing the DNA of what made made America what it is, is the feeling I get sometimes, and I'm worried about it, especially when I talk to students. Uh, you know, I, I don't mean to come across like STEM is the only thing, but the total enrollment in STEM in a city like Nashville, which is one of the fastest growing cities in the country, is less than 10%. Why is that? Right? Where the rest of the world, growing up in India, I would view America as this absolute pinnacle of human existence in terms of you know technology advancement, in terms of science, in terms of mathematics and thinking, in general, in innovation. Today, uh, we are trying to compete and catch up with certain other countries, and that's pretty sad. And that didn't take very long. Why is that? That's because I think as a country, we've become a little complacent. And I think that's got to change. And we've got to have that pride about ourselves that, yeah, we are the greatest country, not because we are named a certain way, but because of who we are, because of how we think about, because of how we want to work. And that is a direct result of uh, what's up here. And we've got to apply that. And we've got to challenge ourselves to work at the top of our, uh, what nature has uh, you know, bestowed on us. And it's interesting too because I, I, I think one of the things that made America unique is that it it was kind of natural selection of the best people from other countries who were motivated and willing to take risks to bring their family over here for a better life. Yeah, and you got the best of all these other countries people. Yeah, because they're the people who most wanted it. Well, and so what's absolutely. interesting is that yeah, I think the the more we can continue to encourage that. Like if we have people from Ukraine or from Afghanistan or from from China moving here, I look at it as they're going to continue to drive like why freedom matters, why you know, economic opportunity matters. And um and it is a fascinating cuz all I I love Ray Dalio and a lot of what Ray Dalio talks about is that um cycles. That's just very hard. just like you said the British Empire with India. Basically eventually you're trying to control a group of people that don't want to be controlled that gets very expensive and if you just get so spread out and your and as uh, your own country goes through economic cycles you get this kind of growing wealth and opportunity gap which uh, just exists because people love their kids so they do well their kids get an unfair starting point it's not like yeah. totally rocket science but then his point was when the majority of people no longer feel that the system is fair or whatever that is, 
then you're in trouble. And, uh, and that internal divide sort of creates external weakness that makes it harder to control India or control whatever other... And so it's so interesting because I think, like you said, the answer that him or these other smart people come up with is like you have to really return to innovation and the pie has to grow for everybody. Yeah. And, 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 and we're still the leader and, and, and we're still doing very well, but that's got to catch up a little bit further. I mean, the, the, the difference is this, I think. We, relatively speaking, we are not innovating as fast relative to everybody else as we used to. Other countries have caught up. In the past, we were probably the only country where everything was coming in today. If you think about pretty much everything that drives the world, it comes from the United States for the most part, right? It's not an absolute statement, but I think it's a, it can be generalized to a certain degree. But that's changing because countries like Israel, like India, like China, they are producing a lot of innovative stuff. Um, we are losing our edge because we are also not producing the same talent here that some of the other countries are able to produce because of their thrust on education, on you know the the hunger to be uh, better than what they are. We we've got to get back to that uh, state of us being uh, the leader. Uh, with, with that clear gap between us and that second, whoever that is. And if we can only do that if it starts right from our schools, right from, you know, parents pushing their children and children actually understanding. Probably I think there's excessive independence given to children when at, at an age when they don't really understand what needs to be done. Um, I don't know what it is. I'm not an expert in that area for sure. But we've got to think of it slightly differently in terms of what got us here. Why are we not able to maintain the same advantage today? We've got to. I, I think we have time. We can definitely turn this around very easily. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, too, the breakdown of the family structure in America certainly plays a big role. I think because you talk about for you or similarly for me, um, parental standards of excellence and discipline and uh people often ask me you know how do you go till like two or three in the morning and it's kind of like i my dad was an entrepreneur like i grew up doing my homework on the floor at his office at two in the morning like i don't i almost can't imagine not doing it that way and same thing for you the bar was so high yeah and part of the challenge is if like you said if your parents had given you an iphone when you were nine and said knock yourself out with candy crush if you don't want to do your homework then that's fine <laughs> that cascades over time and it uh it's a great point so i i think about it a lot as well because in one hand you're kind of advantaged if you want to work hard and have a purpose and stuff in a country that that's lacking but on the other hand that entire country which uh not perfectly, but I think in general has done a good job kind of protecting humanitarian rights. Of course. Uh, like, so you really, you see what's happening in Ukraine, like you really don't want the U.S. Yeah. to slump because in many ways we've been uh, able to preserve, I think, freedom in a way that, I mean, I'm not saying there hasn't been economic interest tied to when we choose to support or not, but in general, we seem to be on the side of the little guy that needs freedom. 
uh, which is inspiring. So it makes things like what you or I do really meaningful. Absolutely. I mean, you can politicize anything and then, you know, uh, make anything absolutely sound bad because, you know, language is sort of such a funny thing. You can make, you know, the worst of things sound okay and the best of things sound not as great. The fact of the matter is U.S. plays a significant role in what the world is today, how it is a peaceful place and how it is a safe place and how people can look up to somebody in case they're in a situation. Uh, unfortunately, uh, there are always counterbalancing forces. Um, uh, but, but all that said, I think there is a reason why people prefer coming to the U.S. There is a reason why I am in the U.S. and why I'm so comfortable being here and why I would not probably go back to live in India, which I love very much, which I respect very much, which is also the largest democracy in the world. So there is no dearth for freedom or opportunity there. It's in fact increasing tremendously. Yet, it's so much easier to get things done here that I believe I can be most effective here than in India. Now, I don't want to even think about some of those other countries which don't enjoy democracy like we do the freedom and the opportunity like wheat. And they're even struggling for basic things like survival, you know, food, um, you know, do I live tomorrow morning? These types of things, uh, we're very, very fortunate. Yeah, so fortunate. And it's interesting too, you mentioned democracy. I, uh, it always makes me laugh when people think our political system's so screwed up because they forget that the political system's job is to let the majority decide. Yeah, we are. Like, we, uh, we, that's we, the whole point of right. it. Yeah, so the minute you and I decide that usually we should have democracy, but today what we think is more important than democracy, <laughs> you switch to this autocratic model, which is so frightening. And it, it, uh, it is fascinating, like you said, because you have to remember what the core principle, which is preserving, is it stops the majority of people from being in a marginalized situation. Absolutely. And, it, and then there's no perfect system. So, well, that, it's all, it's fun. We, I guess we see pretty eye to eye on it, which of all the things we've talked about, we've never gone into government uh, systems. Yeah. But um, yeah, so last question for you. Um, I know you are a voracious learner. You've spent a lot of years building a company. A lot of this audience is entrepreneurs, sales leaders, people who want to eventually probably do what you're doing or something similar. Are there two or three books that you would say are kind of non-negotiable reading to build your own company? Wow. Uh, so I've been reading and rereading The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I'm sure a lot of people that are probably listening to this have read that book. There's nothing wrong in rereading it. Um, that's one book that I think uh, is very, very important. Uh, for anybody that wants to start anything, The Lean Startup by Eric Ries is a really, really good book. I've, I've enjoyed that book a lot. Um, more recently, I was reading a book called The Mom Test. Hmm. Uh, it talks about how, uh, you know, your mom is always going to say what will make you happy and she's going to agree with you. So. How do you get past that fallacy that what you're doing is okay just because a few people that are that want to make you happy say it is okay, but really face the world and understand whether what you're doing is of value or not. That's a Seth Godin principle. 
I think Seth Godin's really big on show me 10 strangers who bought your product. Because yeah. the first 10 that are your family. Uh, yeah, and I love Eric Ree's stuff as well. Uh, very in line. I think the Instagram CEO recommends Eric Ree's book and Ray Dalio's book. Uh, I think they're kind of similar. Um, and Seven Habits is a total classic. I mean, just yeah. some of those principles like seek to uh, understand people before you're understood are such common sense but how often do we create problems in our life that if we had just adhered to those few basic ideas we wouldn't have absolutely um, and now if someone wanted to reach out to you either to work at boss to become a customer of boss to learn from you is linkedin appropriate place or what's the best way to reach you yeah linkedin is pretty good uh if they find me on linkedin uh i think or they could just email me uh, at sishank at bossframework.com. Absolutely. And your name will be linked in this episode. So anyone listening, it's Boss Framework. And uh, just you can easily uh, search it from there on LinkedIn. Well, so Shank, very much, or thank you very much for taking the, uh, the time today. I definitely look forward to having you back as you continue uh, to take over the world of software. And uh, just don't forget about us when you're a global company and our little podcast still needs some uh, good content. Thank you. Uh, Miles, you've you've been uh, you know pretty phenomenal as we were trying to grow in the beginning and 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 trying to figure out how to go to market, etc. Your uh, help was extremely valuable. So um, thank you and thank you for this as well. Look forward to more communication Our, in the future. Absolutely, our pleasure. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Thanks again for listening to today's episode of Business Black Belts. Should you want to see more content on both the show, marketing, and business in general, feel free to check out my LinkedIn. Thanks.